Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. So here we are, part two of our show on identity politics. Um, I thought today that I would start the show with a quote by uh, an author and um, a psychologist. He's a Nobel Prize winning psychologist. His name is Daniel Kahneman. He wrote this important book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he says, when people believe a conclusion is true, they are also very likely to believe arguments that appear to support it, even when the arguments are unsound. So I was considering this show, uh, this part two of the show um, on white identity politics and thinking that perhaps people might have um, a conclusion that they've already come to, um, and probably a lot of evidence that they think that they could find to support it. Um, but there is p- perhaps a new way to look at it, um, a new way to find evidence. So here's a charge. Um, you may have conclusions that you believe are true. You might think that you have evidence to support that. Um, and this show is to challenge those, but, um, it will take an openness and, uh, just the charge to keep thinking outside the box. Yeah, like you said, thinking outside the box and examining these these unexamined ideas and see how they affect our ability to thrive. Um, you know, examining our... It, it's hard to take ideas that we haven't examined, uh, mostly because we don't know what they are. We haven't examined them. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why I wanted to go back and, and come back to the idea of identity politics to really look at how our ideas about identity, mm-hmm. how that affects our uh, ability to thrive. Last time we talked about identity politics writ large, uh, but this time I actually, I'd like to talk about white identity politics. Mm-hmm. And by white identity politics, uh, I don't mean the kind of um, like white nationalist, white supremacist, uh, you know, identitarian politics that are like, you know, right extremists, basically. Right. Uh, I actually want to talk about the more diffuse, more global um, kind of hanging out in society, how identity politics around whiteness get formed in that way, and, and also how it affects the society as a whole. Okay. So this sounds like a pretty big, important topic. So how, how should we break this down? Well, I'd, I'd at least like people to have a, a sense of the direction that we're going to go, especially like you said, I mean, it, this is a big topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's important to understand an I- identity, just the idea of it. And identity hangs out in the background for so many people in an unexamined way that I, I think we rarely slow down to actually examine what identity is. Okay. 
So first I want to examine identity mm-hmm. and then look at whiteness and talk a little bit about uh, the history of how whiteness came to be. Okay. At some point uh, late in a later show we'll do where a show where we look at both the history and the economics of how whiteness come to be, but we're just going to touch on it briefly today. Okay. Uh, and then I, I'd like to talk about what identity politics is, how it manifests in society, and ultimately why I think that matters. That sounds great. So it sounds like we're starting with identity. That's right, starting with identity. So I think it's going to be hard to give a full treatment to identity, uh, only because we have so much to cover, Mm -hmm. so many topics to cover in this particular episode. Uh, But at least some of the ways that uh, I'd like to think about it is, one, we we have to understand that identity exists completely in our mind, right? There's there's no real part of identity that that we can touch. Uh, It's highly contextual. Mm -hmm. And so if you're an American in France, you really feel your Americanness. If you are a Cubs fan and the game is on, you're like, you're really, that's your primary. I have a lot of people that would want me to say the car, a Cardinal fan. So yes, Cardinals, Cubs, Eagles, (laughs) some sports team. Right. Right. Got it. Um, Also, people feel really adamant about their identity. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when the Patriots and the Eagles are in the Super Bowl, I mean, people feel really, really, Mm -hmm. really committed. Um, but also the the thing is that we have these multiple identities and sometimes they're competing identities. And so in and of itself, it's not an easy topic to, to talk about because it morphs so much. We feel so strongly about it. Uh, and also they tend to be unexamined, right? Especially at the multiple level, mm-hmm. sure. uh, at the multiple layer level. And so because we do feel so adamantly and so strongly Uh, about our identities, I I understand that when I start talking about white identity politics that I have to tread lightly, which is what I'm going to do. I think when we try to understand whiteness, we have to understand that it comes out of a particular context and that it evolves over time. And so even people who don't necessarily have the occasion to think about their whiteness every day, like there's some parts of the country where it just it's not going to come up for you because you don't see anybody else. Uh, it's still one of these identities that gets seeped in, and uh, we still end up feeling very, very strongly about it. So what about other people than white people? What about, don't they feel strongly about their identity as well? Yeah, no, I think it's a hallmark of, um, it's a hallmark of how we construct identities and, and operate in the world. Uh, again, you know, I, I don't think that the identities of black people are any more examined. Um, and I talk to black people a lot about what it means to be black and it's, it's, it's unexamined. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I think people feel very strongly about it, but also part of the problem is that we generally have a very fuzzy concept of what it is. Okay. Yeah. So it surprises me to hear you say when you've talked to other black people that you find that black identity has uh, largely been unexamined. Because my, uh, my assumption as a m- minority in this country, black identity would be um, at the forefront of examination. Yeah, again, you know, I, I think most people have not actually taken the idea, you know, taken the time to examine um, their identity. And certainly black people are no exception. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I ask people a lot, right? So when you, there's this inherited concept of blackness that I think black people kind of have swimming around in their heads. And if you push on it a little bit, you'll see that it'll start to peel. Uh, So you can't push on the center. I think at the very center, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like people's lived experience. Okay. They, they have a sense of their lived experience and what that means in uh, whatever kind of social context. But if you were to take this idea and say, like, what is black? Right. Immediately, you'll start to stump people. And you'll get some predictable answers. Like people will start to refer to Africa, which is fun, makes sense. Um, but then you have to consider like Haiti and Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica, as well as the United States and Brazil. Now, you can take the descendants of slaves and say, oh, well, there's a, a common African root. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's actually true for every human being on the face of the planet. Every human being on the face of the planet has African roots. And if that's true, uh, then Africa in and of itself can't be the determining factor, right? And so now you have to think about how long has it been since you were in Africa, and then time gets in there. And so, well, uh, you know, if it's 50,000 years ago that, or 10,000 years ago that your ancestors were in Africa, then it doesn't count. But you have to put like some kind of time frame on it. And then how close to Africa? Right. So are the people in East Africa, like our Ethiopians, are they black? Some say yes, some say no. Well, what about on the other side of the Babel Mandeb? Are the people from Oman and Yemen, are they black? Um, and it gets it gets really tricky really quickly, mostly because it's a socially constructed idea right. that served a purpose in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of live in the in the wake of that purpose. But the idea itself is hard to to hold together because it's a nonsensical idea. Yeah, I think it's um it's interesting. My identity is is such a, a there's so much depth to this. I mean, when we think about identity, I think off the top of our head. I mean, even if you would ask me how what is some of my identity, I could say a woman or a mother. Mm-hmm. You're talking about this um, complex construct of identity, right? That. So, yeah, it served a purpose in this country. And in some ways, I think that's probably the best way to, to see it, right? Like, it, race won't disappear just because it's socially constructed. But we have to at least look at the original context and the original purpose. And I think the same is true of whiteness, right? right. If you were to ask white people um, or people who self-identify as white what whiteness is, I think you'll get some immediate answers that seem, you know, that refer back to Europe, Um and then you'll 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 start to run into problems if you start to press on it, especially at the edges. Again, someone's lived experience, that thing that's at the core of what it feels to be white, that that you can't press on. Like people have that. That's a feeling. Mm-hmm. But if you were to look at Europe and then say, well, what about people in Australia or New Zealand? Right. Because they're not European. Um, then you'll get very quickly, right? People still refer, oh, well, but they came from Europe and so on and so forth, which is fine. Uh, But you could press on the edges even more. Take somebody like Idris Elba, right? Um, Who, you know, is European, grew up in Europe or any other kind of what we might consider black European. That person comes from Europe to the United States and then has children. Is that, are those children white? You say, no, because, you know... Actually, he, he comes from Africa. His parents come from Africa. But all of our lineages come from Africa. And then you end up with the same problem. Wow, it's and so, so complex. If you want to define race in terms of how much time or how much you know, uh, you know, Neanderthal DNA we have, I mean, it, you can. Yeah. But it's tricky enough to really we're saying that this is a socially constructed idea that served a purpose. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to try to make it a hard, like, fast thing. Yeah. So that's what I mean when I say it's unexamined. So what do you mean by whiteness serving a purpose? Again, 
you know, if we look at how whiteness came to be, uh, there are some historical kind of social and economic forces, right? And we'll talk a little bit later in a different show about some of the economic forces. But one of these critical moments where whiteness comes into, you know, like really gets solidified in the United States is under Andrew Jackson. And so uh, there were a few Native American groups. The Cherokee is probably the biggest and most important uh, of them who had signed some treaties and had some deals with the United States. Um so that they could hold on to their land and continue to propagate plantations as one of the largest slaveholding entities. But now, land is not nearly as freely available as it was, and as more Europeans were coming, uh, all the opportunity that was promised to them um, in terms of land, in terms of growth, in terms the of... opportunity. Op- that was promised to the Cherokees? No, that was promised to the European. I mean, you know, part of part of the promise of the United States that you could leave Europe and come to the United States and, and prosper. Okay. And what so many people found is when they got there, there wasn't enough land. Hmm. I mean, essentially, the Cherokees had all the land. And what about us? The, the us being the immigrants. Um, and one of the things that Andrew Jackson kind of campaigned on was taking land from the Native Americans. Okay. So you have like the Trail of Tears and you have like the Seminole Wars and all that, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what he did in the process is, was he was able to, you know, kind of solidify a base of whiteness that didn't really exist in the same way, uh, you know, during the time of, of George Washington. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to take someone from, let's say, Andrew Jackson's class, that class of people, or um, and you know uh, an Irish indentured servant, and someone like Martha Washington, who you know came from a moneyed family, uh, and George Washington married into Martha Washington's family. Obviously, uh, if you were to take someone like Martha Washington and like a, you know what you might consider a white indentured servant, they don't have any natural white bond. There's no nexus for their identity. They didn't see themselves as having anything in common. Hmm. Um, But really, it becomes a political force under Andrew Jackson so that the kind of disaffected, if you will, quote unquote, white people could, you know, have a a political means of getting land from from the Native Americans. So would you say that this would be the beginning of white identity politics then? Whoa. Uh, actually, I never thought of it that way, but I think very much so. I think that it, wow, yeah, I think that is, yeah, I think that is the, the beginning of white identity politics. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that as, um, you know, one of our first shows, we talked about psychotherapy, where maybe that the country needs some psychotherapy. Right. Um, and I, I wonder if this is one of those stories that have become somewhat of a narrative of our country. We've never really completely unpacked it. It just got going really early, and it's just been woven through. You mean the Andrew Jackson narrative? Yeah. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, Andrew Jackson is just the guy on the $20 bill. Mm. Uh, but the thinking, at least that, that kind of kernel of thinking... I think is the progenitor for what we have today as white identity politics, for sure, as you uh, as you pointed out. So could you uh, define white identity politics? Yeah, I think of white identity politics as being not that different than the kind of protectionist identity politics that we talked about uh, earlier. Um, I think so that the community is way more diffuse, but there are small political efforts to uh, to kind of protect whiteness, essentially. 
again, I think it's way more diffuse uh, than what you see with that other type of uh, protectionist identity politics that we talked about in episode five. Um, and I think we see more of more treatment of the individual in in this kind of larger white identity politics. Um, but you also see it at all types of levels. So if you think about the local level, you might see like country clubs that were allowed to bar black people from membership or homeowners associations that we would see that would not sell to black people would be another example of really a political move that was there to protect whiteness. Hmm. I wonder even um, outside of the real political move, like you mentioned a country club, Um, maybe it's not explicitly in the bylaws of the country club, but it is white and it's kind of the, in the background or even the kind of the running current that there probably won't be black members. It's probably going to be highly unlikely that it's explicitly written in the bylaws. I think all kind of smart, savvy political moves that have been done this way in the country have all been just off the books. For example, the racially restrictive covenants that we see from the Federal Housing Administration that prohibited uh, developers from selling homes to black people and also people who had bought those homes from selling to black people later. Those types of things were not written into the bylaws, but they were in other parts of the literature uh, for, for the FHA. Uh, they were in the training manuals. They, the, the people who were you know, uh, employees of the FHA, of the Federal Housing Administration at the time, they understood this. So if you were to look just at the codes, uh, the bylaws, you, you wouldn't find it. But if you were to look at some of their other material, you would. And it's that kind of just off the books type of thing that you find that is again it's it's protective of mm-hmm. whiteness and it's political mm-hmm. and it tends to be diffuse which is why you can have policies like the racial discrimination that we saw from the federal housing uh, administration right oh. that sounds like racial discrimination to me so how's that different I don't necessarily think that it is. I think part of what white identity politics I think part of the the, the goal is to use discriminatory practices. Uh, to protect the idea of whiteness. And some people might just see that as structural racism. Uh, I don't necessarily, I'm not very quick to call it that. I I do believe that structural racism is a thing, uh, but I also like to be very careful with my terms. Mm -hmm. And I tend Mm -hmm. to make a hard distinction or a soft distinction between what racism is, what racial discrimination is, what uh, racial prejudice is, and xenophobia. Right. Uh, And I I think, you know, it might not seem obvious as to why it's necessary to make that distinction. And, you know, I'm a language guy, so you could say that it comes down to semantics, but I actually think that it's more than that. I was just going to ask that. It's it's more than semantics. I do think so. Um, I think in terms of someone's lived experience, when they come uh, up against a harsh experience that is racially motivated... It may not matter um, to to make these distinctions. Yeah, they're not right? going to parse this through. Right, and there's it's not really necessary. Mm-hmm. But there are wider implications as these ideas spread out in society, and be, because I think their causes are different, I think their cures are also different. Right? With something like xenophobia, for example, mere exposure is enough to actually change how people feel. And you see this with all these types of workshops uh, around the world that, you know, one group that doesn't know another group and they do a workshop together 
and then the understanding goes up and mm-hmm. the xenophobia goes down. Mm-hmm. And so xenophobia, I, I, even though at the lived experience level for an individual mm-hmm. might hurt, right? Um, the cures for xenophobia are not the same as the I cure see. for racism. Mm-hmm. Racism is a very, you know, racism is the belief that one group is inherently superior or inferior to another. Whether or not we, we mean to do harm. Is it possible to be racist and not mean harm? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, racism is about beliefs of inferiority or superiority and not necessarily about intention. Say, for example, there is uh, an Asian American that we assume is good at math because they're Asian. Like, that's racist. So mm-hmm. even if you are thinking that you are giving someone a compliment, oh, you're so good at math, um, even if you think you're doing a good thing, that's still racist. Yeah. And, you know, I've had the same thing happen to me. Some of you may remember from a previous episode that I was a rower. And I remember we were in Boston once, uh, my crew, and there were just enough people to play a game of basketball, and I had to be one of the players. And before we even picked teams, uh, one of the people with whom I was closest on, uh, on the crew says, oh, I want you to be on our team. And I was like, well, you may not believe this, but um, I, I'm horrible at basketball. I said, no, nah, you're, you're being modest. And no, you know, I'm not being modest. We all, we set up to, to pick teammates, uh, to pick who's going to be on, on which team. And I'm the first pick. Now, at this point, I've literally told my entire rowing crew that I suck at basketball. I'm no good. I'm the last person that you want on your team. Uh, but trying to disabuse someone of an idea that they have that, that I'm inherently better at basketball like that it's in my muscles or something like that, mm-hmm. like I can just jump higher. Mm-hmm. Trying to disabuse that uh, somebody of that idea is not easy just by saying, hey, I'm no good at basketball, mm-hmm. which is what I did. And then even as we start to play, I mean, I think people think that I'm, I'm holding back. It wasn't really until the game is over that like people are trying to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that needs to be made sense of, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just, just suck at, at basketball. basketball. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but the idea that I, I'm somehow genetically pre-programmed to be amazing at basketball, even if they think that's a compliment, or even if they think that's good, that is, that's the essence of racism. Right. And so we talked about racial discrimination in the context of white identity politics. You know, but there's also this idea of racial prejudice, which is the idea of making a judgment about somebody's internal state or their capability based solely on their race. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to work preliminary hearings at the district attorney's office as a witness coordinator. And there was a senior public defender named uh, Hilda. And I I thought that her name was slightly odd because it sounded like Hilda, but everyone was pronouncing it in this very kind of like almost German way, Hilda. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I made the assumption uh, that she was probably from a German-speaking family. Yeah. So I asked her in German. I said, Verstehst du Deutsch, oder? Um, and, yeah, she said, Yeah, ein bisschen Deutsch, aber mein Deutsch ist so good. Like, you know, I speak a little bit, but my German is not so good. Um, and so, you know, we quickly defaulted into, into English. But her next question was, uh, You must have been in the military, huh? And I said, Must I have been? And I was hoping my question to her would be enough in and of itself to kind of let her know that she had made some gaffe. 
but instead, she I, I wouldn't say she doubled down, but she just kind of leaned right back into uh, her thinking. She said, well, yeah, well, how else would you how else would you speak German? Um, and I said, well, y- you know, I, I have a diversity of it. I have a diversity of interests. Like I'm interested in other things just because I'm black doesn't mean that I was in the service. Um, you know, the, the implication being that uh, black military people uh, and there are military bases in Germany and some people get to see the world that way. And that's true for some people. Um, but also we're not limited to ju- like sometimes I have interests that are outside of whatever you think my interests are, mm-hmm. are going to be. Uh, but her judgment wasn't based on my dress because right? I had a nice suit on district attorney's office. I'm in court. It wasn't based on my tie, which is a beautiful tie. It wasn't based on like anything other than my blackness. Mm-hmm. And so she made this, this prejudgment. She, she prejudged me based on my blackness alone and ignored all of these other like signals that you could interpret. One, I'm speaking to you in German. To you know, you know, it's just like everything got reduced to the color, and then she made this idea. She made this assumption. Yeah, I think this is that unexamined um, way of which, unless we really get in there and try to understand our ideas outside of the way that we typically would go, this is what's going to happen. Um, it, I'm thinking she probably didn't even, even according to your story, even understand that she was making a gaffe. Right. So once I explained it to her, then she was embarrassed and she kind of realized the error of her ways and hopefully took that little nugget into the future so she wouldn't do that again. Right. So I think um, this, you know, white identity politics could be likened to the proverbial elephant in the room. You know, it's it's looming, it's large, but we kind of, I think, tend to ignore it most of the time. Well, like I said earlier, I mean, it's diffuse, and I think that makes it hard to detect. You know, it's subtle. For a lot of people, I think it doubles as the culture of of the nation, and I don't think it is. Actually, I think that those are separate things. Um, But I think that if we don't take the care to separate white identity from our notions of what it means to be American— uh, then we we frame and shape Americanness into this distorted version of what it actually is. Uh, when I think about the United States, it, for me, it's about ideals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's this Latin phrase that's on the back of our dollars. It's e pluribus unum, and certainly at the very, which means out of many, one, or out of a plurality, one mm-hmm. nation comes. And at, at the heart of what the United States is, it's Crispus Attucks and Prince Estabrook. And German speakers and Dutch speakers and English speakers and people who are from Ireland. The United States emerged out of this plurality. And it's incumbent upon all of us to, I think, defend the ideals, not defend the, you know, our tribe, not to defend our group, so to speak. Well, can't you do both? Can't you defend your group and defend the ideals of America? Actually, I don't really think that you can. I mean, where we see injustices, it's incumbent upon everybody to fight those injustices, uh, whether they're brutalities or racial injustices. And there might not always be the political will for someone who is not black to fight for racial equality for blacks. 
which is why that other type of identity politics, the classic identity politics that we talked about in last episode, that's exactly why that's there. But the tribalism comes at an extreme cost that I don't think the United States can weather this storm. You know, if you look at the idea of a major transition in, indiv- in individuality, this is an evolutionary bio- biological idea that says that organisms survive and they thrive best when they are cooperative. Mm-hmm. So the, the reason that the mitochondria got inside the cell is cooperation between single cell organisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see the same thing play through all these different levels of cooperation and growth through evolutionary biology. That is to say that the group, a cooperative group, is always stronger than the individual. Mm. And right now in the United States, we're playing pretty much this kind of individualist game. Yeah. And barely sometimes we come together to cooperate and then we go our, our separate individualist ways. Uh, and the environment that the United States kind of rose to be a thing, that, that environment is changing. You know, I said that before in another podcast, but things are changing. Right. Um, and entropy is always going to do its thing. So we, we don't know exactly what's coming. Um, global Globalization and globalism, certainly it's going to bring forces into the United States we, that we can't predict how it's going to play out. Mm-hmm. And we can never predict how these things are, are going to play out. But what we, what we can know is that our best defense, our strongest thing that we could possibly mount against the forces of entropy and the unknown and externalities is to cooperate. And the better we, the more efficiently we become cooperators, the better we come at being able to reach across political aisles, to reach across uh, you know, racial differences, the more we can cooperate as a group, the, the better we can weather the storm of, of, of entropy. It's uh, putting it that way. It sounds like this is probably a pretty dire time in our country. To um, it, it's it's necessary that we start to do this work. I do think it's necessary. People don't always. I mean, when you look at a civilization, part of this is like I, I have a much longer sense of history that is I'm walking around with all the time. People don't think that their civilization is about to fall, and this is not alarmist, right? It's just right. like I'm looking at the forces of entropy. Mm-hmm. It's gonna take everything down. At some point, the United States will cease to exist, right? As did Persia, as did ancient Greece, as mm-hmm. did Rome, right? So yeah. this is this is how it goes. The question is, how long can we hold on to this ideal? Because I, I think the United States, this project that we are doing, I think it's actually offering something to humanity, um, and so even. You know, there's a famous speaker. His name is Jim Rohn. He's one of my idols. Jim Rohn says, just because disaster doesn't come at the end of the first day doesn't mean disaster isn't coming. And again, I don't want to sound alarmist, mm-hmm. uh, but the idea is that right now we're, we're not working efficiently as, as, as a nation, as a group, as a community. We're pursuing a type of individualism and tribalism that I think is antithetical to the idea of e pluribus unum. Do you think there's hope? I, if I didn't think there were hope, we wouldn't be talking right That's now. Right. So I absolutely believe that um, that minds are changeable, that hearts mm-hmm. are changeable, um, and that the the ideals that kind of lay at the foundation of the United States, I think they're worthwhile, and I think they're worth defending. So um, I think this brings us to the end, the conclusion of our part two series. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I, th- I actually think you have so much more to say, but I, th- I think that's all we can do for the show. It's true. That's all we can do for right now. But hopefully we've raised some questions for you. I know that most of this stuff is, is not easy. Uh, you, you might even have to listen to this episode a second time 
to digest it. But I assume that there will be loads of questions. We love questions. We would love to hear from you, hear your thoughts, hear your ideas. And I know that there will be lots of critiques too. And we want to hear that as well. So you can check us out on Heterodox Americana or you can find us on Facebook. Shoot us an email, write us a message. We'd love to hear from you. All questions and comments are welcome. For Heterodox Americana, this is Rafael Freeman. And this is Angie Backus. We'll see you next time.